Greetings, everybody. Thank you for joining us for another edition of the Surf and Sales podcast with my co-host, Scott Lease. I am Richard Harris. Uh, check out surfandsales.com for our May 2021 and to November. Oh, it's 2022. That's better, Scott. <laughs> Richard, you're on mute. Uh, May 2022 <laughs> and November 2022 uh, events. Uh, they are selling out fast. We'd love to have you there. And all of this could not be done without our sponsors. We want to give a shout out to Reprise, our friend Scratchpad, and our newest sponsor this year, Sendoso. So uh, thank you all for uh, supporting us and supporting them, and check those folks out. I uh, want to introduce our guest today. Uh, his name is Wayne Morris, and I don't have my LinkedIn up, Wayne, so I don't even know what your back, where your, what your current company is, but I do know he's wearing a baseball hat with a W on it which is, you know, pretty cool if your name is Wayne. So uh, welcome to the show. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Here's what, here, here's what we know about Wayne so far, Richard. Okay. He, he likes to talk about sales. He's very educated on early stage and VP of sales stuff. And he's also a ringer on the golf course as yes. we learned, <laughs> as we learned in Las Vegas yes uh, a couple months ago yeah yes yes you got all the ringers on your team i believe i did well, I, we had a good team me and wayne were really the anchors of the team <laughs> yeah. for being honest I, but. My, as usual my scott scott stacked the deck against me because he always does so yeah and as well, usual richard had- thinks i stacked the deck and i didn't even select the team but, i know uh, i know so. We had no oh, handicaps. Uh, the next one, maybe we have handicaps, and then then you can call me a ringer. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> um, Wayne, so Wayne, give <laughs> give folks a, a a quick background so they have context of you know, yeah your knowledge a little bit deeper than yeah what yeah sure. So I spent uh, the first part of my career as an enterprise individual contributor, uh, all in SaaS related companies in Europe, as you um, can probably tell by my accent. I'm from the UK. Um, and then in the previous 10 years, I've helped grow three very early stage startups, one called Maximizer, one called Guidebook, another called Wonder School, to grow from really founder-led sales all the way up to you know, 20 million in ARR, which was about the time I was knackered and needed to bow out at that point. Um, and two of those are still going strong, and one of those has exited uh, to Oracle for about $180 million, I think. Um, and now... Um, so through that process, what I'd done is I, I codified the, um, the, the, the building of sales teams. Um, and I just really wanted to do more, much more of that. So in April of 2021, that's last year, that's correct. Um, I decided to start my own consulting practice uh, so that I could, so that I could do that at scale. And cool. I've been doing that since. So here we are. Nice. nice. So what do you, when you say you've codified it, like highlight, what are the kind of things that you've codified? He does what I do, except he's just better at it. <laughs> yeah. But Scott, you already know, you already know what I'm going to say. Scott, what do you do? I still don't know. What do. <laughs> Wayne, tell him what we do. Yeah. Let me tell you what Scott does. So, uh, <laughs> um, so I, I mean, ultimately there is a, an evolution from product market fit all the way through to scale. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I started doing this down in you know, 1998, so the late 90s. And 
what you know what a, where a lot of founders go wrong is that they they skip from when they have product market fit they skip straight to to scale and there's there's a big thing in the middle called repeatability and go to market market fit and that's really where like uh, I spend most of my time is ensuring that founders can actually take what they've got in their head and get it transferred to somebody else so they can then what go they, step away and run the business. So what are the th- what are the two or three things people skip? Uh, well, they 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 firstly think that um, that that the person they have in the business is actually selling themselves when often the founder is actually doing this, still doing the sale. So letting go of their baby is something that they really struggle with. I see that a lot. Um, the next thing they do that that they really struggle with uh, is once they've got that one person selling, obviously they've learned viral osmosis pretty much. It's very rare that a founder will have a um, a playbook in place that they've that they've learned they really learned from the founder. So the next thing that they skip is they think that that person uh, is then ready just to go hire a load of people rather than putting them under the gun to like actually build a repeatable playbook that they can get someone else in to 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 operate with um so at this point the founder is often going off and just you know posting half decent numbers and trying to go get funding and then just and then step on step on the gas um but really what i find is i mean anecdotally and i'd love to get scott and your takes on this until a founder until a until a startup has got like i say three salespeople operating autonomously like really just not the founder's not involved uh i don't think they've evolved from founder-led sales i think they're still in this like founder-led they, they could well be still in this founder-led sales motion so i'm trying to i'm trying to help founders build build process and build repeatability so that three people can be operating autonomously from the founder and by autonomously i don't just mean like selling themselves i mean doing it better um the moment that they're doing it better at this point in time i'm spending time with the founder figuring out like whether that fire in the corner called churn is getting bigger and bigger or it's under some kind of control because one of the biggest mistakes that i see founders make is they're in this middle section where they they have evolved from founder-led sales but they're burning capital and if they're burning capital they're they're under the gun to raise capital and sometimes that's okay but in most cases, that puts them under undue pressure. So when you have the sales machine, which is the net new thing working, and then you have some control of what's happening post-sale, which is ultimately what the net revenue retention number is and what's going to help create some, some level of uh, sustainability, you're there, you're then, that founder has then bought themselves time to go and get the right kind of funding. And I see a lot of founders do one piece okay and then the other piece not very well. And Really, I try and spend a lot of my time figuring out how founders can do both of those things. They can then be on their own agenda to go go get funding rather than under the gun. And of course, investors are looking for a really strong net revenue retention as you're going into a Series A and certainly a Series B. Um, do you so- think? Do you think, Wayne, that it's still founder-led sales if the founder is kind of acting as a de facto sales leader? to these three AEs that you mentioned or no? Uh, I think it depends, for me, it depends like how involved they are in the, in the deal itself. So, you know, are they, 
So I'll that's the, that's the distinguisher to you is how involved they are in the deal itself. Yeah, if they're managing the salespeople as the manager, then no, you know. But those sales those salespeople are closing deals. They've evolved. Those those guys are running the deal, start to finish. They're just yeah. being managed by the they're just being managed by the founder. Scott, I want to turn it back to you for a second. I know Wayne had asked, but I want to come back. Is there something else you know that you see? these founders missing, right? Since you guys do the same thing. Um, and now I understand. Um, <laughs> I now you get to tell them how stupid they are. I never have to explain this to Richard again, because you've explained it to me. <laughs> no, no I'll, I'll, we'll use it for comedic humor. Um, over the, yeah. So what, is there something, I wouldn't say missing, but is there like, oh, here's something else that I see too? Well, I'm sure Wayne, could probably right now think of a hundred other things that they're missing as well. But, um, you know, one of the things that Wayne said is you got to like transfer the ability to sell this product from the founder to these couple of salespeople. Most founders have no idea how to execute that transfer. And they think that it will work if they hand them a couple, you know, documents or shoot them a couple links about the industry and tell them to play around in the product and they have a chat about what works and what doesn't they think that's good enough um and my experience is that's nowhere near good enough you know you the founder needs to get the things that work out of their head and onto paper mm -hmm. and then it becomes a more teachable and i think wayne used the word codified um kind of process and that requires a decent amount of grunt work that most founders are unwilling uh, to do because they don't see it as a high value use of their time. When in fact, it really is, it's just super unsexy. So that's one thing that I, I don't think that Wayne touched on that I, would, uh, that I would add there. Do you agree with that, Wayne? Yeah, I mean, the documentation of literally everything what I say to my fans is just, just write everything down, write it, write it down, stick it into a document. It doesn't matter how messy it is. Just please write right. it down or, or just record it like loom record. Just you've got to document it somehow. Cause how are you going to transfer that knowledge otherwise? And yeah, you're in my experience is the same Scott is that a lot of them don't really want to do it. it. It's too hard. It's not, I don't know. I don't know why they don't. So, you know, sometimes what they do then is they get salespeople in to solve that for them. And that's like, you know, that's hit and miss at that point. In fact, Scott, I know that you, you know, on one of the, I think it was either Tequila Tuesday or TNS, you mentioned how like you just make the assumption that when you were going in as an operator that they hadn't found product market fit and that was going to be on you. Yeah. Well, like that person, you in this case, going in and doing that, you're providing the most incredible amount of value to that founder. I mean, I would argue that you're basically a co-founder. Well, I, would without, support, I would support that argument, Wayne. Yeah. Yes, I would support that argument. I've seen Scott do it. So yes, I would agree. Yeah. So, uh, so without you, without that person, like where's that company? Yeah, they're nowhere. But, you know, <laughs> all yeah. sorts of weird things happen. And somehow we get a big 1% versus the founders <laughs> 30 to 40%. But right. we digress a little bit. Yeah. But, that, but that is the problem. I mean, Wayne is articulating the problem well you know, trying to go from founder led to, uh, you know, actual sales team led. When, 
should a founder be thinking about bringing in the actual head of sales? This is something that I see all the time and everybody's debating, like founder knows how to sell. Do you hire the AEs first before you bring in the head of sales? Do you hire the head of sales before the AEs? If you have AEs and no head of sales and the founder's kind of overseeing, at what point do you have confidence to bring in a head of sales? All of those kind of questions I see yeah. founders struggling with all the time, and you you have to as well, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. So firstly, it depends on, in my view, it depends on the founder. Like, what's their skill set? So, you know, are they an engineering founder who has somehow proven the value and somehow themselves proven it can be sold? Like, where you know, if that's the case, great, great work. It's time to hire, in my opinion, an evangelical well-seasoned AE who can come in and just grind through what needs to be done in order to create repeatability. Wait, but are you saying, I, but you're, so I'm a founder, I'm a technical founder, which Lord knows yeah. Scott and I would never be. Um, we we're ready to bring in someone, right? We've got 20 customers, 15 customers, right? We're ready to bring someone in. Mm -hmm. So you're saying bring in the evangelical rep who can do it. Because it feels like you're contradicting what you said about bringing in a head of sales who can proselytize it a little bit sooner. Yeah, I'm. So I think you have a number of options, but if you're getting the, in an, it depends what where the startup's at. So if you're a really well-funded startup, you've like you've got a ton of funding because the product is really you know re, has been really well developed and you and you've proven that you you now want to go hard, then I'd be bringing in a VP of sales that can help you codify what you have done to get to this point and then behind them you're hiring aes if you're a, if you're a startup that is bootstrapped it's going to be really hard to hire like a really good vp of sales like really really hard because well, you're, you're you probably be, not going to be able to yeah it's like I yeah i don't know how you do that but you're unless trying you to got, unless you got really big boots yeah <laughs> yeah i mean like at that point the best thing you could do is sell an incredible vision, an incredible future. Go hire someone that you're completely unwarranted to hire at this point and give them a good amount of equity. Um, is, that a, is that a leader or is that a, an AE? Well, if it's bootstrapped, what I'm trying to do is hire an AE, an evangelical AE that is absolutely ready to leave. Because I want, I want that AE to prove that they have gotten this off the ground and they can then go get there so in both those scenarios you're saying go after the ae in first. which scenarios well, oh no, no the no, one that's well-founded or which i mean no, well -funded? No, no. If, it, if it's if it's well-funded then you know i'd be go i'd be going to get the leader okay as quickly as, as quickly as possible if it's really well-funded i'd want i'd want to know that that leader can understand the product get in there and sell it but I'd also want I'd also want to be very very clear that like you're going to need to be bringing two or three reps with you like super fast because this thing is gonna this thing is gonna blow up. Right. And in fact, it's one of the one of the main things that I judge VPs of sales on is like you know who you're going to bring with you and how quickly you're going to bring them. Um, yeah, that's really good. This, this, thing, this thing is going to blow up fast. That's really so. It really depends. It depends on like are you bootstrapped and you like growing organically or if you just pump two or three years of work into this product you've got seven or eight million dollars of funding and this is this is now ready to blow like it's just time time to go at it got it got it so 
So moving from there, right? So you get to that stage. What is your belief system of the SDR role? Yes, no? <laughs> Uh, uh, we want an honest yes. answer based on that giggle there, <laughs> Mr. Morris. It's not a yes or a no answer, though, Richard. Um, so, what's the product? So, you know, what are we talking transactional sales or are we talking enterprise? Yeah, so, not transactional. Like, I can't see a transactional sale for an SDR role. Um, you know, that's yeah, good, okay. But. Yeah. So, um, and then, you know, and what does the, what does the flow of leads look like? You know, has, is there any machine behind this that's seeing a flow of inbound or is this like an outbound play at, at this point? So, you know, if you, if, if at this early stage you have a good amount of inbound lead flow and your ACV is pretty high, hundred K plus, you know, the question is like, is it a good use of the AE's time to be processing those leads? Now, in my experience in enterprise, I grew up doing full cycle sales. So like it never really was never really an issue for me to process that. In fact, I preferred it because going into those leads, I would like, I want to know everything from beginning to end. And there's always this disconnect that like, it was always really troublesome for me. Um, so uh, I, I have trouble with this, I have a bit of trouble with the SDR function, to be quite frank. Um, if you if you are overflowed with leads and you just don't you don't want to uh, wash the AE with that kind of um, distraction, then yeah, I can see why having someone in on a tight qualification process to make sure that the AE only gets stuff that genuinely so then, should be worked on. So then you're saying sense. that there's so there you do not you do not support. Again, and we're speaking very organically, like we don't, you know, there, there may be unique cases, but you don't think SDRs as an outbound arm for enterprise sales is the most best use of someone's resources? In the, in the early stages, I would put that on the AE. Got it, got it. And when would you define it as of not being the early stages? Well, at the point at which you're ready to step on the gas, you've got a mini sales team has been built three to five. You're looking to scale. You want to take that three to five to five to ten. Uh, and you have this inbound motion. And this inbound right. motion means that you're going to distract the sales team away from actually building and closing actual pipeline. Um, yeah. At that like, point, then maybe there's some firepower. I like how everybody just automatically says that there's inbounds coming in. I don't know anything about these inbounds. I don't right. come from this. I don't come from a world where inbounds were much of a thing. Yeah, I remember. You know, I, I think that I have to tell people when I work with companies that okay, if you're going to go take this SDR function, what could you do to drive inbounds? And I don't mean go hire four more marketing demand gen people, like particularly early stage. Like I'm talking like legit pay per click. Like drive something somewhere faster, but. Is that what you see, Wayne? Like when you when you do say, okay, let's focus on your inbound motion, right? What are you encouraging these startups to do at that again early bootstrap stage versus you know a growth stage? Um, I mean, really, it's about educating the audience. I mean, what is your product? What are they interested in? Uh, and really, is building community around that, and that takes a lot of time. 
So you know the 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 prospect of having in the prospect of having inbound quickly if you haven't done any education or nurturing of a community is pretty alien to me as well. Um, I mean, you know, I'm literally going at Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies and just trying to network across those as as fast as possible. Um, so really inbound for me is like truly organic. Like I read this article, I was I attended this webinar, I now understand your company, your product. This feels like something I should learn more about. Can we put time in the calendar? Or like more, you know, an even better one would be, this makes sense. Can you just send me some pricing? But at that, when that's happening, again, I'm the, I'm not really sure I need an SDR. Like it just has to be happening at real volume. Because when that's happening, those are really powerful signals. Can I just take that? Like as the AE, can I just take that and own it? Yeah. Can I just have that conversation with that dude? Because like they're ready. I don't need someone else to tell right. me that they're ready. Yeah. <laughs> Let me uh let me pull us out of this for a second. Ask you a tough question potentially. You ready? Yeah, go for it. Why did you decide to stop being a VP of Sales and go out on your own? Anybody who's not watching Wayne is thinking very very carefully right now we need some jeopardy theme music if we yeah. only had some production quality so when you first asked the question i thought that's such an easy this i got such an easy answer to that question and i paused and thought wait a minute let me just double and triple check whether this is actually an easy answer it's not an easy answer and let me tell you why yeah tell us more about that I love being that first VP of sales. You know why? Because I fucking love building companies. Yeah. I there like is that nothing too. better. You get in early and you're like, this is a fucking shit show. Right. Let's figure this shit out. And I love picking up the phone and I love getting out there. And I'm like, guess what I discovered today? I discovered this. And we are going to shift what we're doing from here to here on a sixpence or on a dime, as you Americans say. So like, you know, and when that happens and that happens on a high frequency, early stage startups, you feel so fucking good about yourself because what you're doing is getting signal and you feel like you're actually building. And then you're doing it with a group of people who also haven't got a fucking clue what they're doing or what's going to happen next. And they're discovering stuff at the same time, whether it's product, whether it's engineering. And you're in this, you're in this melting pot together. And there's just something about that that is really attractive um, and just a lot of fun. I, always, you know? I agree. Like, those were my favorites, right? Because you're in the trenches. You're all doing it together. It's your war story. It's your, you know, um, you're going to remember these people forever, right? It's kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, you're getting, you're getting paid to solve chaos, Right. And yeah. that's fun. But for me, that was always fun, you know? Yeah. Okay. You're, okay. So why did so you decide why, yeah, to stop so, being a VP of sales? Yeah. Well, yeah, we're really of, good at dodging the question. I've noticed. We, we kind of touched on it actually, which is when I go, 
I, what I realized was when I went into these companies was the, the value exchange just didn't feel right. You know, I was going in and I'm like, look, you got the company to this point, but it's not going to get any further without someone like me in the company. And like, you keep giving me like relatively raw deals on, on the, on the deal that we've got here. Like what's one, 1%, 1.5%, but Hey, it's not 1.5%, is it? Come on, like stop lying to me. It's more like 0.75 if I'm really lucky, cause I'm going to be laid in two years or if I'm not, and I actually survive Somehow it's not going to be that much fun. I'm going to be clinging on for a couple of years. Just like this doesn't make fucking sense to me. And in the end, I just didn't like playing that game. In the end, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. But what I do want to do is have those early stage um, experiences on a really high frequency for two reasons. One, I love them. But two, I think I'm really good at it. I can come in and tell you straight. I can shoot you straight. You don't have product market fit. Well, you, you've got no place going to hire a salesperson. That salesperson is going to fail unless you help set them up better. Like, and these are the things that you need to do. Because guess what? I've been there. Like, this isn't how you run a sales or This isn't how you create a culture that's an optimal sales culture. Isn't it so much fun when people finally pay you to, for you to say that because you could never get your old CEOs to do that for you? <laughs> they would never listen. Yeah. That's what's that's what's nuts. It's like it's the consultant. Everyone fucking listens, but you employ me full time. That's what I keep telling people. I mean, people pay you to be the expert in the room, and you know, it's like, (laughs) it's like, why wouldn't these people listen to me? Like, it's so funny. I, I, I've had the experience of being hired and then let go, and then everything that I said they had to do, you know, the next guy comes Uh in and does. The CEO finally believes in it, you know. So, so is there is there a way? Is there a way out of this spin cycle, if you will? Because the cycle is, you know, you get good at, if you want to be in leadership, at least in sales leadership, you become a good seller, you become a good sales leader. You, you last a couple rounds as a VP of sales, you have an exit or, or two, whatever, but then like, you're like Wayne or like me and you're like, this value exchange doesn't feel balanced whatsoever. So I'm out and I'm going to go do my own thing. Is that, is it, are we okay with that being the, uh, the spin cycle or is it wrong and we need to change it? And how the heck can we do that? I mean, I think it's wrong. I'm biased. We're all biased on this. I think it's wrong. And I think the way you change it is at the core of where it's coming from. So um, I'm not sure if you are, Richard, but Scott, I think you're an LP in the GTM fund. Yes. And I think, I um, are you, Richard? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you're both. Well, that's great. I mean, I think, I basically think, you know, a lot of these companies are, uh, exist because they, they get funded through venture capital organizations that help them propel to where they need to get to. Well, a lot of the, if you, if you look at who run those organizations, a lot of those people come from product and engineering backgrounds. And one of the big challenges is I don't think there is a deep enough appreciation of the value that the go-to-market folk, the sales folk actually bring these organizations. And I think that's endemic in who funds them. 
you know, if you de- if you have a deep appreciation of the value of the person that leads sales, then you're going to look at them and treat them differently. So in your scenario, Scott, where you go in as basically the co-founder trying to figure out product market fit for the very first time, you know, my view is if the people funding that organization are um, giving advice and they come from a deep sales appreciation background, what they might yeah. say to those founders is, if you really, really want someone as good as Scott to come in at this point in time, I think you need to make him a co-founder. What they're saying today is, if you really, really want someone to come in as good as Scott, do your very best to get in, give him 1.5%, hey, and don't worry, like he'll do two years of really hard work. And then like you move past that carcass onto the next dude. That's the way, that's just the way it is. But that's not the way it fucking should be. Because people like Scott, people like me and others basically say, fuck you, I'm not doing this anymore. And then- Yeah, I mean, there's more, there's more and more, there's more VPs of sales that are now ex-VPs of sales than ever in any time in my life. Yes, they're all doing something else. Everybody's hitting the eject button because yep. of what Wayne is talking about a little bit, I think. Yep, yep. Wait, That's Wayne, my take. Wayne, are you wearing a 49ers jersey? Sorry. But He's I, representing the whole Bay Area right here, Richard. He's doing very good. There he is. So yeah, this is a this is a this is South Korea. This is a uh, Seoul Korea baseball cap. One of the teams there. This is a San Francisco 49ers shirt. Yeah, man, I'm in the Bay Area. Come on, I've got to fly I the flag. I, you know, I didn't know English people really understood how to play oblong ball, as my <laughs> called it. So, yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt the thought, but I agree with you on on all of it. I want to ask you one more question, and then we'll flip it over to you to ask us a question. And it's about messaging frameworks, right? For your clients. Like, you know, if you have a company, like what, what does your framework create around the pitch and the messaging? And I think the real question is, how do you get something that seems complex into simplicity? Mm -hmm. As it relates to sort of your messaging and framework when you're working with people. Mm -hmm. Well, often when I turn up, the message has been like completely complicated already so often it's just like undoing what they've already done um and i and the first discussion i'm having with founders is like can you like i'm a layman here oh actually let me back up a little bit i'm a very big if you look at my resume every company i've moved from and to it's a completely different industry i have no industry expertise like zero i'm not i'm not an insurance for anything nothing at all I don't know for, I know nothing about any you know, I get this all the time from VCs like where do you specialize what do you mean it's like making money is that is that good enough <laughs> and uh, I, love, I love it so much industry expertise is the most over optimized thing that I can ever. think of yeah yeah ever. so so I go to found, so with that in mind I'm like hey I, I know nothing I just I just know how to make you money and I'll just take you to where the money is so in order to get there I need to understand your product so I try and get founders just to put it into complete layman terms for me. It's basically first principles. What is it that you've got? How core is it to who you're selling it to? And how easily can they replay the ROI back to me? Like, what does what does that look like? And I just, I need them to just break that down to me in really simple terms. Um, so 
I try and hyper-focus as high up the value chain as possible, understanding that, and that's where I try and like start with the messaging. So I'm always thinking like, you know, can this move a share price? Is it possible that I could convince a CEO with a very quick message that this product can move your share price? And I'm really trying to start there. I am understanding, of course, that there are other buyer influences in play that might need slightly different messaging, whether that's the technical influence or the person on the ground actually using the product. But Richard, I'm really starting as really high as I possibly can um, because that's where, um, if we can nail that, everything rolls downhill really easily from there. So what's the, what is the value proposition to the economic buyer that's hopefully really, really senior in the organization? And the things that I get most excited about are like, you know, can, can this fundamentally shift the way in which you run your company? And if the answer is yes, how do we relay that? Scott, what word, what two words am I thinking of? Do you know? I don't know. I have no idea. What all words? All Wayne is trying to say is show me the economic impact of your solution. Ah, uh, right. Richard, what are the favorite words. So, um, Quick shout out to uh, to Reprise, Sendoso, and Scratchpad for supporting us as always at the Surf and Sales podcast and the event. Check it out. Uh, we'd love to see you there live. And of course, Wayne, this is that fun time where we turn it over to you. What question do you want to ask us? Yeah, cool. Um, so all my questions revolve around your own businesses. So you've already been very generous to me in one-on-one -on -one sessions when we've we've got to meet up to give me some insights. Um, the maybe I can just explain what one of my biggest challenges was or has been, and then maybe you can give me a take on like what you know how you would how you would deal with that. So the I think the mistake that I made in building my consultancy was I didn't. Um, I didn't have a strong network. I mean, I was five years into the U four years into the US, didn't have a strong network, but had strong knowledge, right? Um, so then um, so then I have this issue around um, awareness and network and pipeline. If you are in my position right now, and I know Scott, you know, you, you and I conversed a, a, li a little bit, through our communities, you, Richard, you and I less so. If you're in my position right now, and what I've done is I've consistently produced content to build up community, uh, engaged in community to, to learn um, and also to build up network. Um, what would you do in, in my position to ensure that, you know, what I'm thinking about here is like, I don't want lumpy pipeline, right? I just want consistency of, of flow into my consulting practice. And the way I get that right now is some referrals, I have some VCs who point me in certain directions. I have some people that like, you know, do, do some very kind recommendations. But I would say if I looked at my own um, go-to-market uh, evolution, I would say I'm at like 0.3 on my evolutionary curve where I, I as the founder have proven that there is value and I've proven that I can sell it. Yeah. And I'm at this like next stage where I'm like, I need this like so, repeatable sales motion. So, so, so what here's, would I... here's what I would tell you. I would tell you to get super vulnerable with yourself 
and hire yourself, which is hard to do, right? Because we're so connected to it. But because the questions you're asking us are the same questions your customers are asking you that you have the answers to. Now, part of your answer is capacity. What is Wayne's capacity to do all these things, right? Um, and so you have to be really honest with yourself. Um, I, I get less concerned about my pipeline. And it took me a couple of years where it was just like, you know what, something's always going to come in. Like it just has, right? It always does. And so, you know, and my wife and I would talk about it. We never talk about, well, how many deals are on the plate? How many you got going on, right? Um, and I think when I started, I think I felt like it was a crowded space when I started. And in hindsight, it, it was not, right? And I don't think there's a crowded space for what you and Scott do. Maybe there is, but I don't, I don't hear about it other than from, you know, the two of you and sort of the, the crews we hang out with. So I would worry a little bit less and focus more on the quality of the content because that will drive stuff in. Right. You know, um, when I discovered the whole LinkedIn piece and figured out how to automate that so I could get to my connections, mm -hmm. that's when things also started helping. And then Scott started doing it and then Scott surpassed me on it um, and still does. And so those are to me are the things that I focus on, because as a solo entrepreneur, you only have so much capacity. Right. Now, that doesn't mean you don't like tweak your lead flow or, you know, your website stuff, or maybe you start hosting, you know, registration only webinars, right? Like one of the things Scott and I do with our live bonfire sessions, right, is that does generate some level of lead capability, right? Um, do you have a newsletter? Do you want a newsletter? Like, but all these things are capacity related issues in my mind. Um, you know, I think. Scott, I mean, this is how I did it. I always say at the beginning of the year, here's the number I'm going to hit. And then I don't worry about how I'm going to hit it. I just sort of let it happen or not happen. And I think I'm getting better at, well, now let me strategize a little bit better, but now I have different income streams for it. So uh, I'll turn it over to Scott and see if, you know, what I missed. Well, <clears throat> the main question is how do, how do you create a repeatable sales motion for yourself so you have consistency in your revenue as well as the ability to grow it and scale it so i actually don't think that the content matters very much for you right now and i'm going to explain why i just did a quick linkedin search and you have 5300 followers on linkedin yes this is nothing it's nothing mm -hmm. So you could write the, and I think I've told you this before, like you could write amazing, you could write five days in a row of amazing pieces of content. Nobody's going to see it because you, unless you get one of these like crazy viral LinkedIn posts that gets 50 million views, your follower count is going to grow so, so slow mm -hmm. unless you put specific intent behind growing your network yes so if you want to be casting a bigger net you need to 10x the size of your following which to me means 
proactively reach out to others. Mm-hmm. Pick a number. I don't know what the limits are these days, but you know, if I could connect with a hundred new people a day, that's what I would do if I was you. Mm-hmm. Right? 365 yeah. days in a year times a hundred. What is that? 36,000, something like that. Boom. Mm-hmm. Your whole entire business and universe would be completely different if you were able to do that. So I think you just need to be really intentional about growing your network that will provide pipeline and opportunity for you. And then the content that you produce becomes demand gen essentially. Yes. Right now you're writing like amazing pieces for nobody in the middle of the forest. (laughs) Let me ask you this question. There's what? 3000 people on TNS in the, Uh, there's, 2,600 or so in the Slack. Is that what you mean? So, so how many of the, you know, that's the first place you go connect to, right? Those people know you, right? And, and they're, they already know you, know of you. The TNS thing is a, it's a, you know, the TNS thing is the exact same feeling and emotion you described in being the first head of sales and you're, you're bringing in your people. And, you know, I think that's what any of these communities are. And TNS, I think is one of the stronger ones. Um, so those are the people you're trying to connect with, get them on LinkedIn because they're going to know you and they're going to see your content and they're going to like your content and they're going to SEO your shit, right? Like that's what you're trying to do. So, yeah. Yeah. So there's, cool. so there, there's, there's that component Wayne, that is really kind of top of funnel mm-hmm. for you. Right. Um, and then the, the, the repeatability and scalability piece to me is all about finding ways to get out of the weeds. And the more you sit in the weeds and you're doing almost de facto fractional CRO type work, you're losing the ability to scale and you're going to end up having to hire somebody, which you can do that if you want, but a little bit less of a headache and a way to maybe be a little bit more profitable for a while is to get yourself out of the weeds to allow yourself to work with two people instead of one or three people instead of two and do that as long as you can, right? <clears throat> and now your, your business is going to grow because you've got suddenly more capacity than you think you do. There's probably a certain number of clients that you have right now in your mind that would be max capacity and your head would fall off. I bet that number is smaller than mine. And yeah, so it's probably like four or five. Yeah. So how do we change that? What about your business or the things you're doing can provide the same amount or more value without being in the weeds and allows you to work with six to eight people at a time or eight to 10 people at a time. Those are the, those are the two things that I think, you know, somebody in your position should think about focus on. Cool. Yeah. That's incredible advice guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And and so generous as well. Um, I think people listening to this need to understand that this is. Yeah. They should all understand that I just told my direct competition exactly how to compete with me. 
Scott handles all invoicing, so expect one in the next. Uh, <laughs> but you'll probably be there before we hang up. So, and and then he's going to ask five minutes later, "Where's the payment?" So that's the one piece of technology that I have gotten quite good at is sending the invoices, Richard. Yeah, and we appreciate right. your time, Wayne. It was Thanks a fun, so fun conversation, time. Wayne. Thank you so much. All right, fellas. Have a good weekend. You too.